Hey, my dear patrons and listeners. I'd like to get more feedback on what listeners think of the podcast, and if you're willing to record an endorsement or comment for me to insert in the show. If you heard the last episode, you heard one of these endorsements. Basically, I'd like about a 10-second clip of, you're listening to the SRB podcast, I listen because blah 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 blah, whatever reason why you listen. You can feel free to send me other comments or questions, and I'll put those in the show as well. And if you send me a question, I'll try to record an answer. Feel free to record your endorsements, greetings, comments, and questions on your phone. You can send all comments and upload audio at srbpodcast.org slash contact. Once again, that's srbpodcast.org slash contact for all your comments, questions, and greetings. I hope to hear from you. Now on with the show. Вечерком с милой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB Podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog, or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. Since the mid-20th century, science fiction has shaped our view of the nuclear. The possibilities and horrors of the nuclear has had a comparable impact on utopian and dystopian science fiction. American science fiction fans are well-versed in these tropes. What was the relationship between the atom and Soviet and post-Soviet science fiction? In this live interview, the third for Reese's Fall Speaker Series, Nuclear Fallout, Science and Society in Eurasia, Anandita Banerjee discusses the imagination of the nuclear in Soviet and post-Soviet science fiction. Anandita Banerjee is an associate professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at Cornell University, specializing on science fiction and technocultural studies, environmental humanities, media, and migration across Russia, Central Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and Latin America. She has authored several articles and edited books on science fiction and the monograph, We Modern People, Science Fiction and the Making of Russian Modernity, published by Wesleyan University Press. Here's Anandita Banerjee. Before we get into some of the big, big issues dealing with science fiction and nuclear, which is the, the, the topic of our uh, series, I want to first ask you, how did you get interested in uh, Soviet Russian science fiction? So thanks for asking that question, because it's one that I've been avoiding publicly answering. Uh, until very recently, actually. And this is probably also a moment when I want to thank Sean for having me here. It is really a pleasure to be able to do public-facing work uh, uh, with my research, which I place high value on. But very few of us are very skilled in doing that. So this is very important, and I'm very, very happy to be a part of this. So how I wanted, I started on uh, working on Russian science fiction, uh, for the first time I came out of the closet and made it a part of the introduction to the last edited collection that I published almost exactly a year ago. It's a book called Science Fiction Circuits of the South and East. And it has to do with the material lives of science fiction texts that, um, radiated outwards from the Soviet Union um, 
at various periods in history, starting with the post-revolutionary period, and especially during the crucial friendship of the peoples, through progress publishers and translations. And this is how Russian science fiction came into my life. I grew up in basically a sacrifice zone of the Anthropocene. I grew up in coal country in Eastern India, which uh, when people ask me, it's kind of a cross between, oh, I don't know, descriptions of the Donbass or West Virginia with kind of King Leopold's Congo with incredible violence. So in this wasteland, uh, which it was itself very science fictional in an extremely dystopian way. One day, I found a stack of Soviet books translated into my home language, Bengali, in my neighbor's house. And on the top of the stack, in a beautifully designed black and white Art Deco kind of cover, was Alexander Belyaev's 1926 novel, Chilavieka Amphibi, the Amphibian Man, in Bengali, translated actually by one of the pioneers of Bengali science fiction. This was my entry point. And this text I write in the introduction to science fiction circuits of the South and East, washed up again, and we started working on that collection right after I went to see Guillermo del Toro's The Shape of Water. Have you seen that film? Because it is my considered opinion that the source of that is The Amphibian Man, which comes up in the credit. So that's how I got started. So, so what, but what fascinated you about it? I mean, it could, you know, why not, I don't know, something else? Well, uh, one um, aspect that um, fascinated me was that, uh, was how worldly it was right, right off the bat, because science fiction has the advantage of actually being migrant in its very spirit. It is always transnational. It is always actually transmedial, as you know, because Belyaev's novel kind of disappeared for a long while until it came back precisely in the Khrushchevian period in Chibotaryov's movie adaptation in 1962. And the book itself, the story is set in Buenos Aires, and the mouth of the Parana River. And um, in 1962, Chibotaryov uh, subbed the Parana River, which actually has a big theme of pollution, of flows and pollution. Um, Chibotaryov could not film in, in Argentina, where he filmed this film was in Baku, which of course has its own history of energy and energy politics and the environmental fallouts that in Pennsylvania, I'm sure you're very aware of it, it's oil and water. And so um, I did not know, obviously, I, at that age, but remember what I said about the place where I was reading The Amphibian Man. So somehow it also seemed very real, very immediate to the environment in which I was reading the book. Give a short history of, of science fiction in Russia, and specifically in your book, We Modern People, you discuss how science fiction was not just a way of telling about, telling about modernity, but also making it. And what do you mean by that? Um, so I'm going to quote my guru in science fiction studies, who is also cited in the introduction of We Modern People, um, uh, for the first principle that uh, it is a little bit difficult for me to chronologically frame science fiction because that assumes that science fiction is a genre, something that has a fixed shape that, from which you can then make a morphology or a typology or a taxonomy. My guru, Istvan Cicerone, who is a Hungarian scholar who is fluent in Russian um, and one of the founding members of, of the journal uh, Science Fiction Studies, he um, said once that science fiction is not a genre per se, it is a mode of awareness of the present. So this is my mantra. So I take science fiction as a mode of relating to the world, um, or a set of modes. Obviously, there is no one mode. Uh, it is also an effect. It is uh, both an effect and an affect, an affective mode of relating to the world. So from that point of view, without being literary historical, I would say that Russian science fiction as long, I would, I would say maybe 
the 18th century when Russia begins to directly interface with and define itself vis-a-vis -vis what was considered to be modernity in Europe. And so you do get these proto-science fictional texts in the 18th and 19th centuries that are more, less technological maybe uh, utopias. But those are pretty early. In my book, I talk a lot about Vladimir Adoyevsky's um, 4,338, that's the year 4,338, which he began writing in the 1830s. It was an unfinished work, um, uh, which obviously comes directly out of the Enlightenment tradition in the 18th century. So it's, I think it's pretty early uh, in that sense. If I remember correctly, you almost suggest that Russia was a bit avant-garde in, in science fiction. Is is there, is there a particular, like, what is it about, or what do you see about, say, the Russian social historical experience that lends to science fiction writing? So specifically, the Russian social historical experience, I, I, uh, maybe I will start specifically with that and then propose a general theory of world science fiction. Um, specifically, um, you know, it's, it's a rather obvious theory in that, that uh, peripheral spaces and peripheral energetics of those spaces are always a little bit ahead of what seems mundane and real and a part of everyday life. So there is also, this is your classic, you know, um, um, uh, uneven development theory of the telescoping acceleration. This is very true of uh, imagination in my view. And uh, this is part of the thesis, I think, that I offer in We Modern People in the introduction as well, that there is a particular um, dynamic of being very ahead of the curve in the imaginative realm that happens often in uh, spaces, cultures, societies that see themselves as peripheral. It has a lot more to do with a self-perception of peripherality than an objective reality of being, you know, more progressive or more backwards. I think it is, a, again, it's a mode of awareness of the world which is as subjective as it is dependent on objective uh, factors. So technically in the period that I started um, uh, writing very deeply in, in the book. It's Adoevsky is kind of a proto-prehistory part, but my book is focused mostly on the threshold of the 19th and 20th centuries, right? It starts in the late imperial period and ends up in the 20s, because then comes the break in the 30s when there has to be the objective justification of socialist realism. So I kind of stopped there. Um, but in that period, it's a marvelous case study of how the imagination is always running ahead in very perceptive ways, not just in imagining techno-utopias, but also in projecting what sorts of futures can be imagined and can be lived, but also what sorts of futures will be unlivable. Um, the world theory of science fiction that emerges from this specific case study of Russia is actually, if any of you are fans of science fiction, if you read Chinese science fiction, which is getting a huge wave now all over the world, in the English-speaking world particularly. Uh, there are translations galore, uh, adaptations, uh, movie adaptations galore. Um, it's somewhat similar to what I looked at in We Modern People, and it's for me this great moment of deja vu, in that this is the future of the rest of the world, but it is being imagined in China, which finds itself in this incredible space-time of acceleration and compression. Talk about a bit of some of the larger themes then that, because you mentioned this either a, a utopian or dystopian alternatives, what the future of the world, what kind of, what kind of themes embedded there? Because just as a, as a layman of science, somebody who likes science fiction, a lot of the science fiction that I'm familiar with that comes outside of the United States tends to deal with, of course, a lot of dystopia of technological dystopia. Um, there's not a lot of utopian novels or science fiction nowadays or in the last several decades. Um, there is also a thing about aliens. So, you know, some people say this is a these are allegories for race. 
Um, what what are the themes that you find in 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 Russian Soviet science fiction? All right. So you brought up technology and aliens. These are probably the two key terms that most people, even if they are not lovers of science fiction, would most immediately associate with that type of literature. Um, so the first is techno utopia in Russia's case in the period in the you know, period around the revolution, this was very much a real thing. And it's interesting how persistent it is. For me, at this particular juncture, sitting in the United States, a great convergence comes into view as well, uh, which is the following, that the the most ambitious kinds of techno-utopian dreams in Russian literary as well as cinematic science fiction that you see in the immediate, uh, you know, revolutionary period, both during uh, 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 and uh, before, during, and after. Take, for example, Vladimir Klebnikov's city planning pieces that there is a series of literally cities of the future. Uh, plans that he wrote, right, which are very highly science fictional. Uh, on the dystopian side, take the famous Yevgeny Zamyatin's We, which is a city-state. Um, and and so just taking, uh, in the cinematic sense, you have, of course, Ailita, which has its movie within a movie where the future, which is actually this um, um, they used to call them um, actualites, these early cinema, the Lumiere movies, where these were actually documentary newsreels. But in 1924, Pratazanov's science fiction film, Alita, which is one of the first full-length science fiction films in the world, um, the Princess of Mars, Alita, she sees and shows this movie, which is like a science fiction movie, only it is real footage from these techno-utopian city scenes, right? So there is, I love that film. It is so very clever in so many ways, both structurally and thematically. So why I go to this techno-utopia is is because, um, uh, uh, because this seems to me startlingly close to actually where we are looking at in 21st century capitalism in the United States, where it's privatized now, but we are very seriously talking about the moon and the Mars and colonizing the moon and the Mars and leaving our devastated planet behind, not we, that we, just like Zamia since we, is a very small number of elites. So this is what strikes me, this Elon Musk's Mars colony. I'm not sure how different it is from Alexander Bogdanov's 1908 novel, Red Star, because there it turns out that the socialist utopia on Mars, it's, it's actually the epicenter of a resource war. The Martians are planning to attack the Earth because they have run out of precisely rare Earth minerals and fuel. This is our world right now. Um, there is, you know, so uh, the techno-utopianism that I see at this moment in the United States of America is, is, is just astounding because asteroid mining is a real thing, right? Mars colonies are a real thing. So in some weird way, um, not much has moved forward, both in utopian and dystopian terms. If, if someone wanted to read about, you know, some... Soviet to Russian science fiction about the nuclear, what are some titles that you would suggest? I would start with 1908, Alexander Bogdanov, uh, Red Star, the first Bolshevik utopia. I'm not sure when that subtitle was attached to that book. At some point it was. Uh, this is a very, very important political text as well because it drove Lenin crazy and he wrote a whole book uh, denouncing Bogdanov's mysticism and monistic philosophy. But a big part of it, as I understand, was the popularity of Red Star. Lenin actually, this was, um, what was the treatise called? This was... Uh, yes, yes. Um, I'm sorry. 
It's one of those really famous texts that I read when I was researching my book, but cannot. Materialism and imperial criticism, thank you. And, but what tickled me is that, that Lenin, like finally on the last page, can't hold himself back. It's, uh, he says, this man whose book has sold like 10,000 copies. <laughs> and it was not like the book in question was, uh, Bogdanov wrote a lot of philosophical texts as well. But the book Lenin is talking about is of course the science fiction novel. That is the book where this whole entire scenario I'm drawing about the coming resource wars on a warming planet and Russia's takes and the convergence then of early Bolshevik utopianism with 21st century capitalism, it's all there. Yeah. It's all there, literally. So I would ask you to just start from there. And if you want to read, the Strugatskis are very interesting in the nuclear front because the nuclear is uh, kind of repressed. It's there and it's repressed. There is one novel that I think is very nuclear, except never explicitly so, right? Just like Tarkovsky's Stalker, like you could go and read it. It's uh, called The Inhabited Island. Abitaimi Ostrov, where there is this like island full of mutants, and one wonders what happened, right? So those two would be great texts to start with at the two ends of the 20th century. I didn't realize this before, I have to admit to my shame, but uh, the environment, the resources, the lack of resources, the, the fi finitude of resources is a major theme that I actually didn't really consider like and and knowing that your interests are also in in environment how do you how do you fit these together can you elaborate more on this relationship between environment and science fiction so i realized that that you know there's a through line actually between my work on science fiction and my work in the environmental humanities and this through line appeared quite unconsciously so my book, We Modern People, the third chapter of it is on generation. And it has to do with electrification, which was and remains, you know, the quintessential symbol of generation, but also the quintessential myth of both energy and power, right? That begins with, it begins with Lenin's famous, or at least the famous slogan attributed to Lenin. I never have been able to verify that Lenin said this, but it was attributed and, and, and through citation and reiteration, yes, Lenin said it, that communism is Soviet power plus the electrification of the whole country. Which then, you, for those of you who followed Sonia Schmidt's podcast uh, from last uh, uh, time, um, that uh, became also the foundational myth for atomic energy. So, you know, this is not something that just disappeared or is a kind of a period piece of revolutionary techno-utopianism. It is a bottom line that just keeps going and going. And right now, as we speak, you know, Russia has just launched its first floating nuclear power station called Akademik Lamanosov. So in that electricity chapter, the generation chapter in my first book, the first historical figure there is actually Lamanosov. I was sitting the other day thinking, what irony in that. And the reason for launching the Akademik Lamanosov in the North Sea is to looking forward to the thawing of the North Sea and to lay claim to the oil reserves there, the oil and gas reserves there. So in short, you know, what we need to look at in these connections, Sean, that you're bringing up is to look at these things as layered and accreted rather than historically periodized in the age of electricity, the age of the atom, the age of oil. These are not separate things. They are layered, they are entangled, and they will continue to be, actually, they will be even more entangled in the future. Before I get into to some of your recent work, um, what role did science fiction play in the intellectual and ideological life of the Soviet Union? Because, you know, I can see on the one hand, following from Lenin's supposed dictum that this is a very progressive, we're imagining what communism will be like in the future, et cetera. But 
science fiction also has a very critical subtext in 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 many cases so what role does it play then I think that it would be again um, wrong uh, to reduce um, it to just one role. I think that what you will see, let's see, uh, over the long 20th century, as I like to say it, which allows me to go from before the revolution all the way to our present moment, um, that science fiction um, has played uh, many simultaneous and contradictory roles. Uh, in particular periods, it has been um, framed in particular ways, mostly by communities of interpretation, people like us. So um, I think that, for instance, um, the figures that I, at least people I know who are not specialists in, in either Russian literature or science fiction, um, most readily associate with Russian science fiction are actually later in the 20th century, the Strugatsky brothers, right? They are the iconic 20th century figures. Now, the Strugatsky brothers' um, fiction got branded in a particular way as, you know, dissident fiction, as ways to get around censorship, etc., which was true to a very large extent, but it also kind of stereotyped them and put them into a particular box. The Another, my favorite case study, of course, once again, going back to the early 20th century, is Yevgeny Zamyatsin. Because Yevgeny Zamyatsin's book, which I, uh, I wrote about the material lives of that book in this recent collection, um, we was actually first published in English in New York, city. Um, you probably know a little bit of this history of Zamyatsin's correspondence with Stalin, let me go, etc. But what we don't realize often is that that book became a thing in the world um, in the English language and through George Orwell, right? And so when Orwell publishes 1984 in 1948, he says, well, this, you know, is the book that inspired my book. And he goes back, he actually wrote a review of We a couple of decades ago in the late 20s, uh, 28, I believe. But, but the moment in which George Orwell's book comes out, 1948, is when the term totalitarianism enters the world. This is not my original observation. Richard Stites, the historian, put it beautifully, is that that you know, so totalitarianism and Zamyatsin's, we entered the Anglophone, global Anglophone world simultaneously. Therefore, the book becomes an allegory of and a critique of totalitarianism. And that, that this is a very limited reading of the, of the novel. So uh, for me, what interests is, is how readers and commentators literally make books and how it's so, uh, um, so the archaeology of what the authors actually meant to do is actually a very nebulous thing that we can only grasp at. Now, now turning to some of your recent work, in a recent article, you look at uh, the, the book, uh, A Day Lasts Longer Than 100 Years, which was published in the Soviet Union in 1981, written by Chinggis Atmatov. Um, what what attracted you to this novel? Because it's interesting because he's a, he's a Kyrgyz writer, right? It takes place in Central Asia, um, so I would imagine that that otherness of the the author and geographical location is attractive. But what else if that's part of it? So I read uh, <laughs> um, I, I read uh, a day lasts longer than. Uh, uh, a hundred years, or Dolsheveka Dlitsedzin is the Russian title of the novel, back in college when I was an undergraduate, and was greatly attracted to it. And it was this novelty. And then it was kind of, when I was in college in the 90s, um, I was taught it as, oh my God, one of the turning points of glossness literature, right? Because once again, it very obviously had this critique kind of built into its structure. What caused me to actually return to it after 25 years since when I first read it is, um, is uh, this amazing convergence of basically coloniality, the creation of sacrifice zones in which particular kinds of lands and particular kinds of bodies were condemned. Uh, in this case, um, Chinggis Aitmatov's novel, um, it's interesting because once again, you can't box it because uh, Aitmatov was ethnically, as you mentioned, Kyrgyz. 
The novel is set in Kazakhstan, right? And Kazakhstan, if you will remember, was the blank space of the steppe in which the two linchpins of Soviet power were physically located, which was the space program and the nuclear testing program, right, from 1949. Lavrentsi Beria, the uh, legend uh, has it, you are, um, uh, uh, you can read about this in Kate Brown's uh, book, Plutopia. There is a wonderful chapter called The Bronze Age of the Soviet Atom, in which she talks about Lavrentsi Siberia, apparently, and uh, like Lenin's uh, uh, electrification slogan, apparently told Stalin, oh, the steppe is uninhabited. And that led me to think the steppe was always uninhabited. It was always dumb, deaf, gluchoi, pustoi, etc. And that goes back all the way if you read Dostoevsky who, by the way, was actually spent some time in, um, uh, uh, incarcerated on a corner of that Kurchatov Semipalachinsk te uh, testing zone. Um, so Dostoevsky also, you know, wrote in, uh, wrote in 18, um, the, the article that came out the day after he died in 1881, right? Um, he says, well, Asia is the resource frontier that will save us, that will save Russia, build two railroads, one to Siberia, one to Central Asia, and Asia will be Russia's salvation. So this plot also hasn't gone away, right, in those two blank spaces, which were literally secret sites. They were not visible on any map. So I realized that this novel of Aitmatov's was this amazing attempt of making those black sites real, the black sites of the radiant future. So that's what led me to read that novel. Now, how do how does Soviet and, and, and Russian, and, and also thinking about the, the a day last longer, uh, how do they treat issues of the nuclear in both its utopian and dystopian and everything in between forms? Yeah, so... <laughs> I think that part, we have to maybe start uh, at the very peculiar spectrality of what we call the nuclear. Because the nuclear is not something that is seen, heard, touched, or felt. Um, not even after terrible nuclear events. So one of my favorite passages, for example, in To Take Chernobyl, uh, uh, in Svetlana Alexievich's Chernobyl Prayer. Um, so she, as you know, she got the Nobel Prize in 2015. So in her book from 1996, she wrote this book for 10 years after the Chernobyl nuclear accident in 1986. For 10 years, she interviewed people all over <clears throat> the area that was affected by the accident. Um, so one of my favorite passages from the book that resulted from this 10-year-long pro project, uh, Chernobyl Prayer, a chronicle of the future, Kronika Budosheva, is this. And I'm going to paraphrase because I don't have the book in front of me. It's something like this. What does radiation look like? Have you seen it? Do they show it in the movies? What color does it have? Is it green? Is it red? Is it black? And I believe it's a child who is asking this of the author slash interviewer. If it has no color, is it like God? So there is a peculiar spectrality to this tremendously powerful thing. So what fascinates me about nuclearity is whether you're talking about atoms of war or atoms for peace, as uh, uh, it was formulated, of which the Chernobyl power plant was supposed to be the pinnacle, right? Um, so, um, but it was there is this there is this gap, this chasm between the uh, materiality of the atom and the vested energy in it, and its infrastructures, its processes, its sources, its waste, where where it goes at the end and it's semiotics. The semiotics is completely abstract. It cannot grasp with the actual materiality of it, not even when there's a Category 7 nuclear accident like Chernobyl, not even when everybody literally knows that their bodies have been transformed by radionuclides at a molecular level. 
There is just no way to give it shape in language. And so this is something that is, of course, true of nuclearity everywhere, whether you're talking about the southwestern United States, about which there has been very good scholarship, or in Chinggis Aitmatov's zone, that remains unclear whether it's even the Semipalatinsk test site where the Soviet Union did, as far as I know, before the site was shut down in 91, four, more than 450 bomb tests were carried out in that zone. So I think that this is the reason why we need to study uh, this gap between the language of nuclearity and the lives of nuclearity and why it makes it a worthwhile um, subject to study. Hello, this is Carl Qualls, professor of history at Dickinson College. SRB podcast provides value to me and my students because Sean's insightful questions help to reveal the thinking and process behind scholars' research. That is why I listen to each edition and contribute every month. What is contaminated fiction? Contaminated fiction for me is fiction, period. Um, so it's nice that it has a nuclear metaphor attached to it. So for me, basically, culture, there is no, culture is made of contact and contamination. If we, you know, the purity of cultures, like the purity of human genes, is a fiction. And I like to study both the fictionality and <laughs> the hollowness of the fictionality of it. But uh, to answer your question on a more, this is a, 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 my true value as a comparatist. But contaminated fiction, as I use it in the new book, is the way that fiction, um, fictions, works of fiction, fiction on different, uh, in different genres that are produced on a diverse, large number of media platforms of which I include, you know, in which I include print culture as well. It is also media. They infect each other. They shape each other. What is written is written by things that have been said or written before. Right, And there is a particular way in which radioactive fiction travels that is a very transparent case study of this contamination. All our fallout fantasies seem to look the same. Classic example, Andrei Tarkovsky's stalker. There is no evidence whatsoever that that is nuclear dystopia. In fact, at one point, the stalker says, there does not seem to be any radiation in this zone. And I've always wondered about that hanging thing. But then, you know, stalker just found a new life in 1986, right, after Chernobyl. It then became a, some sort of archive of the future. Tarkovsky saw this, it was prophetic. Guess what? Everybody on that film crew, including the director himself, died of cancer. And why was it, right? Was it actually radioactive? So this kind of afterlives and spectral presences of fic works of fiction fascinates me. And that's what I call contaminated fiction. So it, if I understand this correctly, I mean, what you've been talking about today is is mostly in these kind of in the the afterlife and the, the reappearance of these texts mm -hmm. in different contexts and different interpretations so it does it have i mean to to kind of bring back the radioactive idea in the sense that this fiction through its its radioactive properties kind of well, it's like a better term, contaminates us. <laughs> is this is this kind of where, what you mean by this? Yeah, I mean, fiction has long half-lives right. uh, in that sense. But what fascinates me is the recursivity of the processes uh, that I w uh, have been describing and of which I find the, the stalker Chernobyl story a very good case study in that, that you know, we've been, we are trained uh, in literary studies to think about literature um, in chronicle order, 
right, that uh, there is a historicity in which we are trained to think about uh, in terms of literature, right, that there are texts, then they exist, and then they influence other texts and so forth. So there is a temporality of literary studies that is completely destroyed by this idea of contaminated fiction. Because in the case of Tarkovsky's film, for example, Chernobyl basically remade that right. film. Re-narrativized it yeah. in a way. Yeah, and then it keeps coming back. You have a stalker, Shadow of Chernobyl, Call of Duty, Pripyat, Metro 2033. So in gaming, this is where we see this proliferation. So, um, so this transmedial aspect of these storytelling of these contaminated fictions is an object that has been of great fascination to me. And again, it's not that new. I was talking about Trotazano's film Elita from 1924. That too was an adaptation of A.K. Tolstoy's novel. But if you look at those two texts as to how the movie completely remade the novel, completely remade, in fact, A.K. Tolstoy's whole life. You know, Dennis uh, Youngblood, our colleague in film studies, has written about this, you know, how these two exiles, you know, A.K. Tolstoy and Protazanov. So it hasn't just remade the fiction, it has remade the fiction of the author's lives. So it's, it's really quite interesting. And so I think non-mimetic texts do it very well because you can, like, stretch them back and forth in time and space in a way that you, I guess you really can't if you're reading Virgin Soil Upturned, although I suspect there may be more to that. This Aitmatov novel, you know, I mean, Katarina Clark said, well, it's kind of formally innovative, but it's really a social realist boy meets tractor thing just remade into some ethnic, you know, form, and which was a pretty standard model for non Russian, or I guess ethnic literatures in the Soviet Union, with socialist in spirit and narodne, um, uh, folk in form, ethnic in form. But that's not true, right? So the ethnicity does things to the text that's beyond just decorative. You, you just briefly mentioned uh, Dmitry Glukovsky's uh, Metro two, 2033. Um, talk about this because you you um, you call it a, a bunker, <laughs> a bunker Bildungsroman or a, this bunker coming of age story. Uh, what 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 is that? What do you what do you mean by that? <laughs> um, that actually uh, uh, is part of the whole book project of the Chernobyl effect because. Okay, so until I think Chernobyl is a turning point, not so much as an event as a profound rearrangement of the relationships that humans and their non-human environment have with atomic energy. And so I, I mobilized this uh, paradigm shift, if you will, um, for the whole book. Um, so Bunker Bildungsroman, now Bildungsroman is a coming-of-age novel. It is... A, classic um, term that is attached, that Franco Moretti famously attached, right, to your 19th century realist novel. And the coming-of-age novel, especially in the U.S., is still very, very popular. It is a very dominant form. So why put it in the bunker then? So what Chernobyl said to me, <laughs> said to me, oh my God, this is terrible. But, um, but why I found Chernobyl theoretically and critically fascinating, actually, is because it broke through basically a spatiotemporal arrangement um, of, uh, 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 of, of, of decades uh, that came before it. In other words, atoms of war, right, the Cold War was, as Jacques Derrida famously theorized two years before Chernobyl, no, in, there's an article called No Apocalypse, Not Now, which was produced at a very famous symposium at Cornell, where I teach. And so uh, uh, Derrida you know, describes nuclear power as a stockpiling of metaphors, a stockpiling of these futuristic projections of what the end of the world will look like, except that they are always differed just beyond the horizon of history. So this is a very neat formulation. Atoms for Peace was just, you know, this uchronia of the radiant future that will go on forever. 
absolute continuity, eternal regeneration. These atom, you know, the Cold War apocalypse and atoms for peace seem like binary opposites, right? But if you think about it, both of them lie outside of history, outside of everyday life and the facts and the materiality of it. They were partitioned off in space and time. Yeah, in space, like the testing zones were not in anybody's backyards, now were they? So Chernobyl, by happening, just changed radically all of this. It forced, an, uh, you know, this kind of reckoning, if you will, uh, with radiation as a fact of everyday life that was not going anywhere, that was in the present continuous and the future imperfect. And this is what for uh, me was most fascinating. Now in Bunker Bildungsrum and that um, chapter, I was fascinated by how these newer games like um, Metro 2033 were actually quite different from the old Cold War fallout fantasies where, you know, there is a terrible atomic war and you know, there is survival, and then it kind of peters out historically right there. This one, in contrast, is the building of a life in the nuclear fallout zone, which actually has a very clear sense of where it is going. It's a little bit different than the survivalist genre. And so I was fascinated by this, um, Refamiliarization of a nuclear state of the world. I was admittedly also watching Russian state television where Kisilyov every few weeks, you know, you all know Dmitry Kisilyov, right? Every few weeks would say, well, here, we'll blow Manhattan up now, and this is what it's going to look like, and there'll be a simulation. All of you are probably aware of the was it two years ago or last year at the Valdai uh, when Putin uh, spoke at length about, about this, you know, uh, they will, they will just, uh, how did he put it? We will ascend to heaven in glory and they will just die. Yeah. Or perish, perish. And then the room erupts into laughter. There's the Burivestnik simulation of how it'll get under the radars and hit Florida. You this know. is a supersonic missiles. That yeah, this a, is like a lot a of hysteria here right. as well. Right. And as you know, there was this mysterious second Chernobyl or something happening on the North Sea in the secret city where this Burivestnik, everything is a rumor, nothing, everything is possible to quote Peter Pomerantsev, nothing is truth and everything is possible. So we don't know exactly what it was, but what I'm interested in is that everything now, you know, in the Metro 23 age and the bunker building there is a whole parallel reality in these simulations in which we have to place a science fictional video game. And this is the coming of age story of every participant in this transmedia network. And finally, I, I want to come back to this issue because, I mean, one of the reasons why I organized this series on the nuclear is the fact that you know, after the Cold War, we thought that we were over this, right? But there's more and more talk of n nuclear today. And it's not just in the context of, say, you know, Iran getting nuclear weapons. You know, both the United States and Russia are talking about building more nuclear weapons, right? We thought we were, this was over after the, the end of the Cold War. So what place does the, um, the nuclear in Russian science fiction speaks to the not just Russia's kind of present and fu possible futures, but perhaps our own as well. Uh, well, I think the really important thing to remember is, again, um, not atoms of war, but actually atoms for peace, which often pass under our radar. Um, I was talking about the launching of the Academic Lomonosa floating nuclear station into the North Sea um, in 2019, earlier this year. Um, Rosatom is the organization that runs it. And then after this mysterious explosion, putatively out of a bungled test of the Burivestnik uh, Skyfall missile, 
it came out that Rosatom was also involved in that site, but there were several public statements made by representatives of Rosatom. One thing really caught my attention. They said that, no, no, it was not a missile. We, we only run civilian facilities, and we have to hurry up because we are competing with China to build floating reactors off the coast of Africa. So Africa is the new frontier of our atomic, not atoms of war, but atoms for peace. Uh, to me, why I bring this up is because we are actually, again, going back to the science fiction of 100 years ago, very much on the frontiers of planetary resource wars and resource colonialism which is really, really important to keep in mind that there are, as you probably have read in the news, there are a lot of negotiations between Moscow and Beijing. Um, those are land-based in Eurasia, across Eurasia. But I have not heard um, that much about the liquid nuclear surfaces on which these resource negotiations, the geopolitics of resources that are very much future-facing are taking shape, and at least not among humanists. That was Anandita Banerjee, an associate professor in the Department of Comparative Literature at Cornell University, specializing in science fiction and technocultural studies, environmental humanities, media, and migration across Russia, Central Asia, the Indian subcontinent, and Latin America. She's the author of We Modern People, Science Fiction and the Making of Russian Modernity, published by Wesleyan University Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye.